This is episode 80, The Informed Early Interventionist, featuring Meredith Harold of The Informed SLP. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese. I'm Deb and I will soon be joined by my co-host Maria Catones and Meredith Harold of The Informed SLP. But while I sit here editing this episode, I am enjoying the Vice Cabernet Sauvignon, the House Napa Valley 2017. This wine is as black in color as the darkest of nights. It displays notes of black currants, black cherries, and plums with a hint of vanilla and a waft of pepper. The full-bodied mouthfeel is accompanied with a chewy finish. I thought this was a great wine. My sister brought it over this weekend when she came to visit. Uh, We watched all the Netflix and drank almost all the wine, but a little bit was left for me to enjoy while I edited this episode. We chat all things research in early intervention speech therapy, and Meredith gives us great tips that you can use tomorrow in all of your sessions. Before we get into that, I'd like to ask you to please review us on iTunes. It really helps us out, and it helps other listeners find our show. Also, another way to support the show is to check us out at patreon.com slash SLP's Wine and Cheese. And now, on to the show. This episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese is brought to you by the Informed SLP. Great clinicians need great scientific research to inform their practice. But how can we know the research with so many articles and so little time? The Informed SLP makes it easy. Each month, their team of scientists and clinicians find the research for you. They explain it without the jargon, without the burden, just for SLPs. So you can spend less time reading and more time treating. Visit theinformedslp.com and enter coupon code WINEANDCHEESE for 20% off. We are talking all things research in EI, um, early intervention, birth to three years old. So um, I did like a little bit of homework before I came on with you guys to make sure that I'm pulling kind of like all the research trends and early intervention over the past three or four months and essentially went through everything that's been published over the past three or four months within our scope. And um, the there's not as much research on kids under the age of three and speech and language intervention that's like explicit and direct as we may hope. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I honestly would like to see a lot more of, but the reason it's not done is you have so little control um, over the stimuli and it makes an explicit uh, instruction really difficult with those kids. And so like the general kind of like consensus, it centers around the whole like follow the child's lead, like Hannon style approaches, you know? Um, Yeah. And there's some things that come out every so often that gives us, give us hints. Um, Like we all know that you should do like expansions with little kids, right? Mm -hmm. So they say one or two words, you say more like three words in order to expand on their utterance. Um, But there's starting to be some research that helps us know what we should say during those expansions. Like an example um, is that 
adverbs support verb learning. Um, it's oh. particularly when they're really specific. So like if you're teaching a kid a word like stir and you say something like stir slowly and you know you model it out or whatever, having that slowly there um, is helpful for the kid um, more so than having other words that don't support the meaning. Like if you were to say something right. like stir nicely, it's like nicely doesn't tell you anything about that verb to help them understand what the verb means, you know? Um, and so there's research kind of on that right. coming out. That, that makes sense too, though, because you're not like stir and then pour and then mix and then add. You're spending more time on the verb stir by adding the way in which it should be done. Stir slowly. Yep. So we're yep. still talking about the same action. And then if we were to be like, now stir quickly, then stir slowly. We understand that the constant then has been stir and the exactly. only thing that's changed is the rate of stirring yeah so i think that makes a lot of sense i'm going to use that yeah okay. i yeah. like that one yeah and I think that goes into like what we were saying before about early intervention where you are just like playing quote unquote quote air quotes i did air quotes there everyone um that it is kind of natural to like you know, pair like slowly with stirring or like, let's say like playing with the car, you know, like drive fast, you know, like that. So I think that like, it kind of goes hand in hand. Like it feels natural to say that. Yeah. And as we, as we know, when parents are watching us or other professionals are watching us, they're like, look at that lady playing with that kid. But you know, the little things matter and exactly how you know we're doing it. Um, and the other thing that I think that like a lot of people get intimidated about looking at our field's research and being like, oh man, what's it going to say? It's going to tell me I have to do these the crazy things I've never done before. But a lot of it um, is really like subtle tweaks that you can make to everything that you already know. Right. And I feel like, um, you know, when you stay in contact, when you find a good way to stay in contact with our field's research, it ends up a lot of times feeling really validating as a clinician. You know what I mean? Because like mm-hmm. what I just told you, does that feel all that different from what you're already doing? No, but does it add like just a little bit of information to, you know, like help frame things? Yeah, so. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, yes, I do, st- I do stuff like that. And then you're like, like I'm gonna do it more. Like yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do that. Gonna, yeah, exactly. Keep that exactly. up. And then I think a important part is like to tell the parent or the caregiver like, Oh, I'm, I'm really showing the word. You don't have to be like, the research shows the adverbs. Like you don't have to get all crazy on them, you know, who invited this lady? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Like, I'm really, I want to keep the word stir and I'm just changing like kind of what Deb said, just changing how we do it, you know? So it's good to keep some things consistent, but you know, add language, you know, that's going to be something a parent I think would understand. Yeah, for sure. Something along those lines. Yeah. And a lot more of the research on building speech and language actually centers around like that parent coaching, actually. Right. Like that's something that keeps coming up over and over again when I like am looking at our field's literature. Um, and all early intervention SLPs are doing parent coaching, like obviously, right. you know what I mean? That's right. not news. But um, I do think that it's helpful to kind of like see some of the little like things that are being revealed by our field's research in terms of how you coach and little things that we might be forgetting. So like one little thing is um, 
the education aspect of when you're telling a parent to do something, they're a lot more likely to do it if they understand why, right? Yes. Just like, I'm a lot more likely to eat vegetables if I can explain to you why I should be eating vegetables. Um, and so like, um, there was some research that came out um, recently on deaf and hard of hearing kids and um, how to get those um, kids wearing he their hearing aids regularly if they have them um, and about how um, most of the time early intervention SLPs um, aren't spending enough time um, teaching the parents about why the kid needs to be wearing their hearing aid even if they're just like home all weekend long, right? Like why oh, yeah. they should still be wearing it at home and how it impacts speech and genuinely actually teaching parents in the way that we were taught. Like we understand the concept of like the speech banana and how like if you can't hear certain sounds, like they'll drop out and that's gonna impact speech and stuff. But a lot of times nobody's really taught that to parents, right? Yeah, right. right. So, or taught in a very hurried way. Like here's this handout, the speech banana, like here you go. You know? Right. Right. And what they really need out. Yeah. And what they really need from us is a lot more um, education, which is, you know, time consuming, but it's well worth it if you have a kid who, for example, isn't wearing their hearing aids. All the, you know, like speech work you do is not going to matter a whole lot if you can't, you know, get basic things like that in place. Um, and just concepts like another thing that, that keeps coming up in like the early intervention coaching literature is about how um, parents need hands-on experience doing stuff mm -hmm. like it doesn't work for you to say watch me and then you do it like me later like they need you to actually watch them doing the thing and then give them feedback about that which again kind of makes sense like imagine if you were to like go to the gym and you're working with a trainer imagine if that trainer the whole time was like showing you how to do the workouts without right. really trying them. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. instead what works better is when the parent does the thing and you coach them on it rather right. than having them just watch you. That was a great example. I, yeah. I feel like this is something that I always convey and I feel like to some parents is a little bit mind blowing. Um, and then you feel when you work private pay or private practice, you start to feel like, I want to make sure I'm doing everything right in a timely manner. But yeah, I often say, okay, so when you come, bring in a normal meal that your child would eat and show me the way in which you would feed it to them. And they're like, so you want me to come here <laughs> and bring food and feed my kid? I'm like, yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. That's what I want. But like, I definitely, like, I feel as though, very many parents are just like, okay, I guess if that's what you want, but what am I paying for? And I, and, but it's yeah. necessary. I need, because sometimes I see it and I'm like, okay, I've identified a new issue. Uh huh. We need to, here's what we need to do in terms of adjusting and in, in feeding time. But um, yeah, it's just. Yes, I've had a parent like that too. Yeah, it's just like, I was like, all right, why don't you try it? Because I don't feed on the first eval. Definitely not. No, no, no. You feed them. And I was like, okay, let's not lay them I'm like, back. oh, never mind. Stop that. No, no, no. That <laughs> <Stop laughs> like, food in their mouth. Let's, yeah. Let's stop like, right here. Okay. And we're going to play with some toys. But Lynn, we're going to talk. 
just put that away, actually. <laughs> Don't ever do that again in front of me. Yeah, exactly. I'd have yeah. <laughs> and that's that's often I feel that's happened to me at Cheers. least four times. <laughs> four. <laughs> it happened to me once. So it was like enough for me to be like, yeah, okay. Just so, yeah. Saw enough. Got it. <laughs> gotta go now. Please just take a sticker and go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But um but yeah, so I love that we're doing this whole parent coaching section because, yes. Um, yes, they definitely, I need to incorporate this more. Just, it's good to observe what they're doing, but then also it's good for them to see me do it and then, then it'd be their turn. Yeah. 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 They just need, yeah. Adults just need hands-on stuff in order to learn um, and they need to be really involved in the process. Like we know that for other things too, like they need to be really involved in the goal setting, which again, most, right. you know, SLPs know, but also just kind of like auditing your own work sometimes. Like I felt like when I was working full-time as a clinician, like I knew these concepts, like parents should be involved in goal setting, but right. then I actually audit what I'm doing. I could kind of look across my caseload and be like, well, yeah, I really didn't do that for about half these kids. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or you um, did it, but it like, did it really like sink in and did they really get it? And did they really right. implement it? It's not, a, it's, you know, it's more than just like, okay, so we're gonna, you know, whatever, let's use our example, Sl do stir slowly. And then like, it, then you have to like, that's your cue to be like, how about you try it now? You know, like maybe we yeah. felt a little like awkward to have the parent, maybe the poor parent. We, I don't know. A lot of times I would not like feel bad for them. I don't want to say, but like they're so overwhelmed and like just to ask them to do more stuff seems like tough, but oh, totally. yeah, like right. you're just really just trying to help them, which is actually going to make everything in the long run easier. Yeah. So I have a great out. example of this. So I recently. Do I need more wine to hear this because that no. other story got me going. I was like, yeah. yes. <laughs> I recently stopped seeing a child. I, I referred him to a, uh, another very trustworthy clinician. But on our last, our very last session together, <laughs> and I've been working on all sorts of stuff, mainly articulation, um, she was like, he can't say his sister's name. He's always like her, that girl. And I'm like, who? Bella? And he's like, she's like, no, not her. Um, Olivia. And he would never say Olivia. So it wasn't until the last session that I heard that. If I had asked her, like, in your life, in your daily activities of living, in what way is he unable to communicate, I never... I never asked that question. Yeah. And it wasn't until the very last session where I'm like, oh, Livia. <laughs> like, I'm doing it in all different ways. And it's like, I, I beat that word till it was dead, I feel like. But I felt like, um, what's that thing that every SLP talks about? Imposter syndrome? <laughs> That's when I felt it. I was like, <laughs> how did I not know this kid can't say his sister's name? Yeah. Cause yeah, it's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would have worked on that if I had even thought to ask, like, how is his, how are his family life? Like, yeah. and I never did, but it's okay. You live and you learn. And this is also a great thing about this episode. Right. So it's like, whoever's listening to this is like, yeah. Oh yeah, let me do it. Mm -hmm. And we're always learning. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I spend my days reading research and um, I am always learning and always feel, feeling um, mildly incompetent or moderately or maximally incompetent at something. No. There's always so much to know. There's always so much to know. But the more you learned, honestly, too, um, the more you start to realize that you do know a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? This episode is brought to you by Therapy Travelers, and Flavia is going to share three great reasons to work for Therapy Travelers. All right. So one amazing reason is the company culture. Um, you won't find that working for any other agency company that really, truly cares about um, their therapists and what they're doing because we want to change kiddos' lives. Choose our benefits. A lot of people do not get wonderful benefits when they're working for agencies, and they're unaware that they actually can get those. So 401k, we match up to 4% starting day one. We have a wonderful EAP program, which is all mental health based, and that's completely in the company. Medical, dental, vision, we do cover 75% of your premium. You get PTO, you get paid holidays, you get CU and reimbursement, sick time. A lot of those things you do not get when you're working for an agency. And the last thing is something called a relationship manager, which is a person that's there to be your advocate and to help you when you're on assignment. We don't just place you somewhere and forget about you. We have someone that's there to check on you, to be your main point of contact. They're also the main point of contact to the school district if you have any issues. So it's just a really unique agency to work for. Um, and we love everybody that works with us. We're a big, happy family. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm inspired. Thanks. <laughs> Research with the informed SLP, Meredith Harold. There was a, there was a couple other um, things that came out in the research in the past um, few months that were kind of like hot topics. You guys want to talk? About hot yeah, hot topics. Want to talk about screen time? Oh yeah, we oh, do. Yeah, screen time will freak people out, right? Like yeah. Half or something. Yeah. So um, last year, there was a ton of headlines. I don't know if you guys saw I it. Show, right? Yeah, everywhere. Like there's been headlines um, everywhere in the past year about screen time because there's been um, some more research coming out where I would see headlines like on, you know, popular news outlets like mm -hmm. CNN and stuff okay. that, like that that said stuff like too much screen time changes children's brains, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then people are contacting us and freaking out and being like, what's that? You know, what's right. going on? And, um, you know. Is that um, like correlation is not causation? It's just like uh -huh. children are more inclined to stare at screens when they have these underlying symptoms. Oh my goodness. The genius of practicing SLPs when they know <laughs> what's really going on without you even having to explain it. Yes, that's exactly but what it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ding, ding, I ding, hate ding, the news. Wins. That's why I don't watch that show. Because all they do is want you to click their article and watch their channel and make you freak out. It's clickbait. So it screen is. time, like screen time scares were big time clickbait and over the past year. Um, but yeah, basically, so um me and the team like dug into that back in, I think it was December, um, and pulled all of the articles that these headlines were referring to and all the articles over the past year or two. And essentially they're all just correlation things. Yeah. We're like you can measure the brains of children and 
um, the white matter tracts, so like the parts of the brain that um, connect one area to another, um, are different in kids that have excessive amounts of screen time, but it's not being proven that if you have more screen time, it's going to change your brain. Instead, they're just associated with one another. Right, and yeah. yeah, like, and anybody who works with children with special needs can imagine a million reasons why a child with lower language or poor executive function or lower cognition might be more exposed to screens simply because they're being given screens more often That's, too, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. um, it's a, it's a tricky thing because on the one hand, we can't say like um, excessive screen time doesn't matter at all because right. like, that's not what the literature is showing, but it's also not showing that screen time is causing brain damage either. Like there's a lot of, you know, kind of like warning signs out there, there that are making us think, hmm, maybe we need to pay attention to the screen time issue, but it's not as cut and dry as most of the headlines say. We just really, to, to be perfectly honest, we really don't know still. Right. Um, and I would I, always encourage like interaction. I think that like nothing's better than you being involved with right. your client. But mm. at the same time, like there are times when I have said like button a hundred times and then I make an AAC say button and the kid's like button. <laughs> They just repeat that what the robot said, even though here I am just like doing everything I can think of to get them to say it well, and it's not working. I think there's research about that, that because like that the robot's voice, it doesn't have like those prosodic features. So it is like easier for them to comprehend because it's not like, I don't know. I, I don't know. know. I yeah, don't know either. But it's happened to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if it makes it so like, a lot of people who listen to your podcast are probably parents, right? And so they're probably sitting here like thinking too, like what's normal? Um, and I, I have data on that for you. Oh, let's hear so, it. Um, kids under the age of five get an average of 1.5 to three hours per day of screen time. And that's the average. Mm -hmm. So 1.5 to three hours means on average, if you look at, you know, people at your kid's school, people in your town, whatever, um, kids under the age of five are getting that. Um, but because that's just the average, it does mean that some kids are getting none and some kids are getting a whole lot more than that. Um, right. but, but as clinicians, I think a really important thing too is to like, if you come across a family that's using screens um, a lot, so a kid who has a tablet just 24 seven, um, I think it's really important not to shame that family and be like, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends no more than an hour per day. And so I'm going to put you on a regimen of no more than an hour per day, because that's actually not what's happening for the majority of the population. Right. And no. also it doesn't acknowledge why parents sometimes are using screens. Like, you right. know, it's yeah. like, yeah. Or like, does, or is this parent, um, working multiple jobs and needs the child to like chill out while they like make phone calls or clean the house or whatever, you know, um, right. it doesn't take into account the fact that our society, um, yeah, oftentimes isolates families at home or isolates them in ways that they end up needing childcare and the childcare becomes the screen, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't have an iPad as a child just because I'm ancient, but I had a lot of TV and I think I learned a lot from TV and I'm proud of who I am today. I learned a lot from Full House and <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> on Fridays. We're, exactly. our, 
Are, did you watch that as a kid or am I older than you? Oh, I loved TGIF. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. In the oh, and Sabrina. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then as, as when I was in high school, I mean, it's not an appropriate movie, but I watched Cruel Intentions a ton. And oh, gosh. I learned a lot of words there, like treacherous and uh, impeccable and exactly. all of these uh, very big words that these uh, pop stars, essentially pop actors were utilizing in context, I started to yeah. understand. So, I mean, whatever. Lots of things work. <laughs> Nobody needs to be freaking out about screens. We can be, you know... Right. Aware that it can present issues, but nobody needs to be freaking out, mm-hmm. perhaps as much as the headlines have been saying lately. Yeah, don't listen to the news. They're bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so just- Paris, is there any other uh, research that is like really eye-catching or? Yeah, the other thing that I pulled that might kind of um, like, um, might be interesting to people is so in um, clinicians that are working with uh, children with autism a lot, particularly if you're in situations where like you're in a private practice and they're trying to decide like what programs and stuff to put in place, or like if you're in a school system where they have like self-contained classrooms and they're trying to figure out what programs to put in place, um, as you might know, there's a whole bunch of different stuff, right? There's ABA, there's Jasper, there's the Early Start Denver model. Like there's all these different programs for kids with autism. And it's like, how on earth are we supposed to know what to recommend? Or I only know what ABA is. I don't even know those other two. The other ones? Yeah. Well, yeah, I've spent a fair amount of time in autism programs. And so I've yeah. And I'm sure a lot of your, or the, the listeners will have too, where they've had SPED directors, you know, say something's going to be put in place or a clinic owner. But anyhow, you can kind of think about all of these programs as being on a spectrum from behavioral, which is like the ABA type stuff, to naturalistic, which is more like floor time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, floor right. time. Yeah, yes. I know floor time. Um, so like really following the kid's lead and stuff. And then with other things falling in between. And a lot of the research that's come out within the last year is actually starting to show that things that are sort of central on that spectrum mm-hmm. are actually the ones with the strongest evidence. And so Yeah, yeah. Meet in the middle. Hey, that's nice, right? And so these things are called um, NBDIs. They're um, naturalistic um, developmental. Oh gosh, hold tight. Let me look at my paper. I always remember what the ac- forget what the acronym actually. Says. While Meredith is looking for that, she's got a really cool earring on. It looks like it's stretching up the side of her ear, and I'm wondering oh, climber. where yeah. that came from. Uh, <laughs> and I, if don't I, know. I need that in my life. I don't know. <laughs> I can try to remember later. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll include it in the show notes. Yeah, in the show notes. <laughs> Meredith's funky ear climber. I'm really liking that. <laughs> I like funky things. I like funky shoes. I like funky jewelry. You know, keeps life interesting. Um, yeah, okay, so true. naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions. I always forget what the acronym stands for. But anyhow, they kind of like take advantage of both behavioral um and naturalistic programs, and they are actually the ones with uh, some of the strongest research right now, more so than um, ABA-type programs and more so than the purely naturalistic ones. So um, if anybody, if any SLPs are out there with people saying, 
you know, this is the program that has the strongest evidence. That is the program that has the strongest evidence. There's actually papers that have looked into the literature and compared all of them against each other um, through a meta-analysis and essentially tried you kind of like a ranking. So if somebody at your workplace is like, like, oh, I think we should use this, you can go to these papers um, and figure out sort of, you know, whether or not they're choosing something with strong evidence behind it or weak evidence behind it which um, is super duper helpful. And obviously, yeah. show notes yes. for you guys too. Wow. I mean, I just think it's always important to demonstrate virtue in all that you do. And that's the middle ground between excess and deficiency. Mm-hmm. And like, that's essentially like, like I don't want to say floor time is the deficiency, but that's where I'd place it. And I'd say ABA is the excess. You guys mm-hmm. can write me hate emails if you'd like to. <laughs> um, but I think finding the middle ground between the two of those is where I like to be. I like to know about both of them, but then also be like, I will follow this child's lead, but I'm going to do it with intention. I'm not just going to follow them around their apartment all day. Right, right. I'm going to do it with intention. And then I'm also not going to make this kid stand up and sit down 72 times. Yeah. Until they do it right. I'm going to, I'm going to incorporate that into a more naturalistic setting. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like I've always said, I I mean, seriously, like Clinton, clinicians intuition is often in line with what the research ends up showing but it's really nice to have that data too to kind of like make sure you know yeah that you're on the right track yeah to like give you the confidence to know that you're on the right track and also like sometimes we are wrong and sometimes our intuition is off and to like help you know correct for some of those things as well Mm -hmm. so Do you think sometimes like the thing that's hard with research is like um, the personality aspects that you lend themselves to being successful in therapy? So it's like, like that's kind of an outlier. So it's like, if, if somebody were to say, use X, Y, and Z, can that be generalized to all people or does it have to be done in a certain way? Otherwise it isn't effective. Like for instance, I know like oral motor movements that are, they don't translate over to speech. Uh-huh. I know that. But sometimes I do like to use whistles and oral motor movements because I just want to demonstrate to that child, like when we come here, we do things with our mouth. Right. And like, that's how we start off. And I'm not thinking like the more we blow this whistle, the better we are going to be at speech. I'm just thinking like, I'm going to give him this whistle. He's going to get that immediate feedback of that sound. He's going to continue. That's going to be motivating. And then we're going to progress outside of that in other capacities. Yeah. But if I wrote in a research article, like I used whistles and then this kid spoke, like that would be problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'd have a hard time finding data to prove that was true. And if you get on, and if you get on an SLP Facebook group and you say, I use whistles in therapy, there's going to be people that Mm -hmm. are like, no, I'm just going to post that on my Facebook and go to sleep and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you no, I am after like this episode to air after, after this episode airs, <laughs> yeah. it'll be a social experiment to, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. use whistles in speech. <laughs> I do. I use, I, I use have duck whistles. Hierarchy. I have duck whistles, kazoos, flutes. I have everything. I have harmonicas. 
Yeah, a kid I think harmonicas are good because that's like music though, you know? But, well, like, I had a kid that I mean, didn't even understand blowing until I, I was my third whistle in. And I was like, <laughs> we need to put the air out that way. Yeah. And your rationale for it is like perfect. And I always say, you know, like it's the reason behind what you're doing it. And like Maria mentioned earlier, like a lot of times you're doing things that you have no intention of doing long-term, but you're doing it for a reason and you're planning on fading it and it's fine. And to be perfectly honest, like I'm also like a big proponent of like, let people have their placebos, right? Exactly. like, Like if, if I feel like, you know, rubbing lavender oil onto my wrists every night reduces my stress and somebody else tells me there's no research to, you know, support that. Am I going to stop rubbing lavender oil onto my wrists? No, no. you should stop because talking to them. Yeah. Because, They're toxic. <laughs> because like in my situation for me individually, it works. And our clients are that way too. Like sometimes our clients need something individually that's different from what the data shows for the masses in general and that's okay so yeah I agree and it's always like it's all about clinical judgment so like obviously no research article can come out and be like use this and then you'll treat this use this and then you'll fix that it's not gonna work like that it's all like something just to introduce maybe if there's a research article about like I don't know I was about to be like chaining and introducing and then chaining into (laughs) Food. Yeah, there's yeah, there's food chaining stuff. But again, I, yeah, Meredith's not a food expert, so don't That's ask. Okay, me. exactly. All I want to say is I've heard of it. I've heard of it. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Meredith has other experts for that. Yeah, I other experts talk about the informed SLP and Meredith and how like you started and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So the I- reason I was able to like pull all of this research in like 20 minutes before our podcast is because I do it full time. So the informed SLP is something that I created um, after I had been in a research lab for 10 years. And then I worked as a clinician for um, five or six years full time and started to realize that it's really difficult for clinicians to stay up to date with the research. But at the same time, there's a lot of information out there they really need to know. And so I had created the informed SLP as a solution to it. But basically, um, it's now blossomed into something that's really thorough where um, we have 30 people on our team right now. We're about to hire three or four more. So um, it just keeps growing. But it's a combination of scientists and clinicians working together, basically going in and reading all of the research in our field every single month and pulling out all the little tidbits that clinicians would need to know. So if there's some little thing that you need to know about or some big thing you need to know about, we basically put it in like a monthly digest so that you can stay up to date with our field's research in like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, um, rather than just ignoring it, which is what otherwise would happen if somebody wasn't helping you with the labor, right? Because it's too labor intensive for clinicians to have to dive into databases on their own. Well, it's also easy to get lost in the day-to-day. Yeah. Like all of the roles and responsibilities that you have, like even today I had to be in well, two different places, but still like it took the whole day. Well, three. And, uh, I didn't have time at all today to like look at research. Social database. database. Yeah. 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 And it's not even just a lack of time, but you know, journal articles aren't written for clinicians in the first place. 
they're written for fellow scientists and there's a lot of stuff in there that that clinicians just legitimately do not need like all we need from the journal articles are the clinical take-homes right um and so there's a lot of barriers for why it's difficult for clinicians but i honestly didn't realize that until i started working full-time when i was working as a scientist i thought that it was that clinicians just need to read more research like and the scientists are like, ah, what's the problem here? Yeah. We're like yeah, doing like, all the research. <laughs> yeah. They're like, I don't get it. I don't get why you can't just read this. Yeah. Like, what's the trauma? And the, yeah. and the clinicians are like, I don't remember to wash my hair. Yeah. yeah. Right. But, but it's the scientist's job to read research. And that's what's often forgotten is it's part of their job, but it's not this in the same way part of clinicians job and also scientists are um topic area of experts so they're like an expert in stuttering for example so they're only responsible for stuttering clinicians however are responsible for our entire scope and so right. for us, if we were to genuinely just read the research we would have to read hundreds of papers every single month so mm-hmm. good luck with that that's not happening <laughs> well you can get that done if you subscribe to the informed slp I, um, I've mentioned earlier in this episode that EI has always been my SLP fear. And I feel like I always throw myself into it because I don't want it to be my fear. Um, but I am going to be speaking about early intervention at the South Carolina speech and hearing association conference on February 13th. I believe it's 8am and, um, I'm using the things that I do in my clinical practice, as well as the information that was provided to me by the informed SLP in my presentation. So come hang out. If you're in South Carolina, I'd love to see you at the presentation. And I can't recommend the informed SLP more. Yes. I wish I could come listen to your talk. (laughs) Yeah, I wish too. I mean, I'm also... you know, I'm fine. I'm good with it. I'm not nervous. No, I'm totally nervous. Um, You'll be all right, Deb. Yeah. I don't want to be all right, Maria. You're going to be fine. I want to be groundbreaking. I mean, <laughs> it's a little, it's not your own research though. So no, it's not. And exactly. that's what I, but that's what I keep telling myself too. It's just like, right. all I can do is go off the information that has been provided to exactly. me. Exactly. Which you and, can do. And that's what I can do. And you have a I can... whole lot of like really good like clinical experience to like help describe everything too. So it'll be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So Meredith, you, we usually end each episode with a quote. And do you have any mantras or any quotes that you would like to share with us and our oh. listeners? Oh my goodness, I didn't yeah. prep this one. Uh, I know. This is, sometimes we like to... We always forget to tell. Well, I do. I always forget to tell. I forget to tell too. And then other times I'm like, it's okay if it's it on It could be spot. a song lyric. It could just be something you tell yourself day in and day out. It can be okay. like what you wake up and think. So I write stuff on my walls, not directly on my walls, because that would be inappropriate, right? But I take sticky notes and um, put them um, on the walls to remind me of stuff. And one that I have on my wall right now says joyful curiosity, because that's something that I want to make sure to instill in my peers um, as we proceed into 2020 where like learning regularly isn't something that's supposed to be terrible, awful, boring, and cumbersome but it should feel like joyful curiosity, like what you feel when you're, you know, a little kid learning about something new for the first time. And like I see with my five-year-old twins, like I want people to feel like that about learning. 
Yeah, I love that. That That's resonates great. so much with me because I recently told my college students that if you think you want to pursue speech language pathology, you need to ask yourself this question. Do you want to learn about this for the rest of your career? Is yes. this a subject Good you want one. to continue to learn about? If you find it so interesting that you want to continue to learn about all of the things that are within this scope of practice, speech, language, communication, feeding, and swallowing, then this is the place for you. Yep. So that's been another episode of SLP's Wine and Cheese. I'm Deb. I'm Maria. <laughs> Meredith. Good night. Good, good day. Night. Good afternoon. That's our show, everyone. Thanks for listening to SLP's Wine and Cheese. We have new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe. Also, we'd appreciate it if you would review us on iTunes. If you love the show and want more bonus content, please check us out at patreon.com slash SLP's Wine and Cheese. Have a great day, everybody. Mm-hmm.